Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are here tonight gathered for the satsang of this week. As most of you know already, I'm in the process of commenting on the wisdom, sayings, actions of Jesus as they are conveyed to us by the Gospel of Luke. It is not the first time that I'm commenting on parallels between Jesus and yoga and the yogic wisdom. Some opinions, some pathways in traditional Christianity, in fundamentalistic Christianity and in tantric yoga, they are extremely different from each other, even going in opposite directions apparently. And yet at the same time, the truths expressed by a man like Jesus, they are automatically representing the highest wisdom on this planet. It's the top level and uh, therefore I have been asked often by people who share the love for Jesus or at least who are intrigued by the words of Jesus I was asked to explain like how would that be understood from yoga what chakra does that represent uh, how we can do it through yoga exercises to experience a little bit of that love or of that state of consciousness, that is exactly what the purpose of these satsangs are, to uh, put Jesus through the perspective of Tantric Yoga. So, I'm in the middle of a very intense chapter number six, because in this chapter I say it's very intense, because Jesus, at some point at the acme of it, he did the famous speech about the blessings. In the history of Christianity, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus went on a mount, on not a big mountain, but a hill, like in Israel, and because thus he could address, they didn't have loudspeakers and videos in those days, so he had to stand in a high place, in a high position, and from there he talked to hundreds or maybe thousands of people, who are gathered around him. He must have spoken in a loud voice, in a strong voice, to be heard, overheard, especially if there was a bit of wind or something. No, So Jesus spoke to people, and uh, it's one of the strongest uh, moments in the life of Jesus in terms of talking, in terms of what he says. The Sermon on the Mount is... Uh, remembered almost by everybody. When they think about what did Jesus say, then things which come up on the Sermon on the Mount, they always come. So it was one of his uh, most famous discourses. It was a place where big things have been said. And of course, Jesus repeated many things many times because his message was essentially simple. But such a spiritual genius like Jesus... At the same time, he understands all the laws of the universe, all the principles, all the forms of resonance and this. And of course, when he speaks as a matter of example, as giving examples, then of course he refers, he makes references to a lot of things. And uh, we spoke about this Sermon on the Mount, the famous blessing, blessed are those who this and blessed are those who that, where Jesus turned things upside down. And then it doesn't say, and the next day he told them, like, it's one and the same event. This was a marathon event where Jesus spoke a lot and said a lot of things. It doesn't say it's a, 
And in another day, Jesus was again on the same mountain and he also told them the story about the uh, turn the other cheek and if somebody who takes your cloak, give them your tunic. And no, it's like all of it is in the same speech. So he was like on very much. And in being on like this, he said some remarkable things. When you put together everything which is said in this chapter number 6, in this episode where Jesus talks from a hill, a lot of stuff is coming from there. And we saw that he continued by using this ethical measure that whatever you do to the world, God is going to do to you. Like in this famous sentence from the Lord's Prayer, where he says, and forgive us our mistakes as we forgive to those who have done mistakes to us. Which implies automatically if we don't forgive, then God will not forgive us. Mother Nature will not forgive us. So it's uh, expressing this thing that if you are a perfectionistic person, then when your judgment day comes, God will be perfectionistic to you. Well, you don't really want that. Because if God is perfectionistic to you, you are dead. You are going to hell. And therefore, uh, perfectionism is a very bad attitude to have in life. You say, but there are people who are perfectionists. Yes, I have friends who are consultants for business and industry and so on. And one of their mantras is, perfectionism is a form of mental disease. Because there is nothing perfect in this world, and hoping for you to do or achieve something perfectly, is simply, your mind is sick, you are looking, you are not living in reality. So basically saying this, I'm saying that uh, Jesus is presenting us to like, do you want forgiveness? Of course you do, because everybody does shit. You know, everybody does a mistake here and there. No, as they say in liturgic songs in Christianity, only Jesus is the one without sins, you know. Everybody else, including Peter and Paul and you name it, Everybody has done shit at their time. So, but they have received forgiveness, absolution. So if you want absolution, then you have to give absolution. You will not receive absolution if you don't give, if you don't practice what you are asking for. So Jesus has come to this and he announced this. And then he announced two more very painful things, which especially the first one in teaching spirituality is absolute, where he says, can a blind man lead another blind man? That's what's happening in spirituality. No, unfortunately, the modern spirituality has become a chaos, where people who smoked some marijuana and had some high state of mind, really I've encountered at least 10 of those people in the last 15 years, they think they are enlightened. Just because they had some fun state, some great state, when they smoked marijuana. Timothy Leary, the father of LSD generation in the United States in the hippie years, he thought he was enlightened because he took LSD a few times and he had some peak experiences. And he said we should put it in the drinking water in the United States. In all the big cities they should put LSD because with LSD the whole America will wake up and 250 million people will be enlightened in the same day at the same time and that's heaven on earth. He was an idiot. There is a documentary which is called Timothy Leary's Death or something like that. 
the death of Timothy Leary. Look, he's a grumpy, ugly, old man, angry, dissatisfied, really nagging at people, you know. He doesn't even look good physically anymore. Like, he's, he's a loser completely. And when he died, he wanted them to cut off his head because the scientists of the future might bring back his brilliant brain and make him live again because his brain dying is such a waste for humanity. This is just, just an old egocentric megalomanic man, you know, and he was not even a pleasant person, you know, very like, you know, this is why I say, so it's like, you have a lot of people who pretend they are spiritual teachers, no? And Jesus makes it very clear. He says a blind man cannot lead another blind man. No? Every person who thinks, could I be blind? They should stop instantaneously. Anybody who has this question, oh, well, wait a second, I might be blind. And you should not be a teacher. You should not sit here. Don't do that. It's a huge mistake if you do that. The people who do this, they already have to take a lot of responsibilities and a lot of pressure. And the lives of Milarepa and the lives of Jesus and Ramakrishna, they were not fun. Because they exposed themselves to some very special type of pressure. And that's why this is not a joke to be And Jesus says it very clearly, a blind man should not even try to lead another blind man. And then he jumps to the next, like he is on a chain. It's flowing and flowing out of him. And all the time you can see that he is criticizing whatever is lower than Anahata. And, def- and definitely, maybe there is a very beautiful self-sacrificing Manipura or a harmonious Muladhara. He would not directly go against those. But then at least he is criticizing all the time the disharmony in the low chakras. Always in everything which Jesus says, you can see that his ultimate enemy is ego. Ego, ego, ego. Egocentrism or selfishness is what pisses off Jesus most. He always has examples say, why do you want, if you are blind, why do you want to lead and so on. A student is not above his teacher and all the things which he says, which I read last time. Like only an Idiotic, only a selfish student will think I'm above my teacher and now I can tell my teacher what to do. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why? Because you are a stupid, arrogant, egocentric person and you are ready to forgive your own shortcomings, but you are ready to criticize everybody for the smallest thing immediately. So all the time in the in the subtext, in between the lines, you can read this, that Jesus is constantly criticizing this thing. Pride, arrogance, selfishness, egoistic interest, and all these things, as well as blind passions and blind greed and confusion and other things. But remember, he was teaching these things in Israel. And one of the biggest poisons of the Israeli culture... It has been, was and is ego, Manipura. Ugly Manipura is happening all the time. 
the priests who crucified Jesus, they had an ugly manipura. They simply could not tolerate that they had the authority and they were hand in hand with the king and they were hand in hand with the Roman authorities and this hippie was coming and preaching love and people loved him more and listened to him more and appreciated him more than they listened to them. As soon as their authority was endangered, they said it is better for one man to die than the whole nation to go to hell. And they just killed Jesus without any scruples because to them he was a threat. He was an ugly threat to the social order, but of course to their own status, to their own power and things like that. So Jesus is constantly digging at this, that people have an ego and in certain societies and in certain environments that ego is very strong and that ego is pushing people to do a lot of heinous things. And Jesus is constantly mocking, ridiculing, and wooing that ego. He is the enemy of the ego. When he sees somebody egoistic, he goes against it. He says it in a million forms. He says, the humble shall be exalted, and the pride, the proud, shall be smashed down. Not like, if you are humble, Jesus says, may you become a great soul. But if you are arrogant, Jesus wants to see you biting the dust. It's like a provocation because the ego supplements itself to God. It's the elementary story from Judaism with Satan. That Satan was an angel and then he wanted to replace God. No, This is the thing like, I am good enough. I am smart enough. I am strong enough. I can do it. No, you are not. Even David, King David, who was a king and he was a bit wild and he did some things up and down, he says it very clearly. Only the soul that is humble is not persecuted by God. Like when you are humble, God doesn't kick you when you are fallen down. But if you say, hey, I can do, yeah, show me what you've got then God has got a lot for you, you know, like, you be ready to receive a lot of shit, because arrogance provokes. Instead of you surrendering and saying everything is coming from you, and I surrender, you are saying, I don't need to surrender, I can do it by myself. That is a provocation. That's like you throw the glove, and then it's a provocation. And thus, The humble will be supported, but the arrogant shall be smashed down. And all the time you can see that Jesus smashes down the arrogance and the ego and this godlessness, which, again, the the Jewish people were quite religious in their time. But among them there were some of these arrogant, proud, manipura, selfish people who were disharmonious and they were only pretending to be spiritual, but they were actually doing a lot of unspiritual things. And he continues. The Sermon on the Mount continues. All these things have been non-stop, non-stop, starting from the Sermon of the Mount. And never is there a mention that some of it happened the next day or in some other place. Therefore, we have to admit that probably 
It's he was on, he was wired up and he was going on and on. And he apparently changes the subject, but the subject is the same. No ego, surrender to God, love God with all your heart, with all your soul. That's the only way to go according to the path which he gives to people. And he jumps next. We are somewhere in chapter 6, paragraph number 43 or something. And he just finished by saying, you know, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Like be the change that you want to see. No, first remove your own thing. If you are a fornicator, how can you cure fornication in the world? If you are a thief, how can you cure theft in the world? You cannot. First you have to eliminate your thing because only then you've got the clear referential to see what should be done, how far one can. Jesus, he has a clear view of the world and of the solutions to the world. Other great spirits like Krishna or others, they had a clear view to the world and to the problems of the world and to the solutions to be brought to the world. And he continues and he is again on, but the idea seems to change, but he doesn't because he's criticizing. He is on a rampage because he says this, the principles are this. And then he says, why do you try to do this? Why do you try to do this? Why are you shamelessly undoing this? And now he gives another famous parable, which is great. I consider I quote this one at least once a month or several times per month when I give speeches, when I give lectures. Because this is one of the things which is fundamental. It's fundamental. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart, stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. This is fundamental principle. Like everybody can talk shit, you know. George Bush says, I'm Christian and I'm born second time born Christian. Question, what the fuck did he do eight years while he was president? What did the world get? from George W. Bush and his fellows. Answer, one of the most violent and murderous period of the 21st century. So Jesus says George W. Bush is a devil dressed in a sheepskin. He pretends he is a lamb, but he is a wolf because the trees of the fruit, the fruits of the tree are clear. Don't come and tell me about I had good intentions or there is no good intentions. The tree is known by the fruits. It's as simple as that. And thus, this judgment is fundamental. This is a resonance. It is impossible that a demonic force or a person influenced by a demonic force should do something fundamentally good. Because the demon would twirl in its grave to see that what he did results in something good. He would hate that absolutely because he ultimately has destructive and dark intentions. So when he does something apparently good, it's not good. I give you money, 
because I know you are alcoholic and with that money you are going to go and get drunk and then do some shit. No? So it was good like I was generous. I gave you money, but my thought was this money will destroy you. I'm giving you some rope, so you hang yourself with that rope. You know, It's all like this. Always, ultimately, things are talking in this way. So, you know, you are asking. In this religion, they did a lot of war. They did a lot of killing. They did crusades. They did inquisition. They, you know, it's like, was it good? Those are some serious spots. Serious spots on the face of any religion or anything. Because people can say, but we were right. The people who created the Inquisition and other like this, there's a famous saint, a Basque, a saint from the Basque land, from the land of the Basques, in between Spain and France, who created the Spanish Inquisition. And you know his judgment, what his judgment was? If people do witchcraft, then they go to hell. And according to Christian dogma, that hell is forever. So it's a very, 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 very inexpressibly very serious hell. Because it's kind of forever. And therefore, he says, if I can take somebody who does witchcraft and take them and maybe beat them up a little bit and torture them up a little bit and make them recant, make them say sorry because I did witchcraft. I love Jesus. Sorry. Sorry. It was my bad. And I'm taking that person and I'm making them repent and give them absolution according to the Catholic norms. And then I kill them. Then they will probably go to purgatory or paradise because they died in a state of grace. They died with Jesus. So probably they will be forgiven. So the Spanish Inquisition considered that by torturing and killing people, it saved their souls. So the intention was perfect. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And thus, this is why I say, but Jesus, they forgot this thing, that any tree is known by the fruits. When you pass by somewhere and there are 25,000 people wailing in agony and dead behind you, left behind because you are having a good intention, that they will not go with Jesus. For Jesus, that will not work. Jesus is going to tell you, you heard what I said? Then the good tree never produces bad fruits. How did you produce these bad fruits? So, you are going to say, but Christianity, even early Christianity, produced a lot of violence. Yeah, but that violence was that people assumed it. They owned it. They said, I am with Jesus, and the Roman Empire crucified them and killed them. That's a different story. It is not a violence which they did. It's a violence which they had to endure and it was assumed by them. They owned it. They said, if that's what's going to be, that's what's going to be. I'm not leaving Jesus. So, uh, this principle, keep it in your hearts because it's fundamental. It's fundamental. No? What is going to happen from this or that, you know, so again, many people will go and say, you know, like, should a woman do an abortion or not do an abortion? Well, let's look after five years what has happened. If that woman performed an abortion and then she did five years of yoga day and night 
and she reached the state of Samadhi and now she is like Amaji or Ma Ananda Mai and she is saving the world, then you have on one hand a dead baby and on another hand help to a hundred thousand people. So it goes like this. The tree has produced good fruits. But if I see that a woman performed an abortion and all she can do is in the next five years that she is clubbing every night and she is drunk and she is having one night stands without end and she is vomiting on her own chest because she drinks too much and she basically lives like a half animalistic creature. Then better she should have had the child. Because the responsibility for a child, the lack of freedom of having a child and having to take care of it, and you know, that would have made her more responsible than the fact that she just killed her own child and then she went out to have more party and more fun. No? It's always the tree is known by its fruits. What are the fruits of the tree? No? Psychology, modern psychology. It's supposed many people say, why don't we do it psychologically or this or that? in Tantra or in this, you know, that's one of the main conflicts which rages about Agama now since this last event and scandals, you know, uh, that uh, I'm supposedly not uh, listening to some psychological thing. Here is a little fact picked up from a documentary which is famous, which is called The Century of the Cell. It's a four-hour long documentary about Freud, Jung and modern psychology. They made an experiment in the Catholic Church that they had the monastery somewhere in Colorado or some Arizona, some New, whatever, New Mexico, some place like this. They had a monastery in the Midwest in America, Catholic monastery, because the Protestants don't have monasteries. So obviously it was a Catholic monastery. And in this Catholic monastery there were 256 nuns. Like it was a big monastery with 256 nuns. That's quite a big community. And then they offered them free psychological consultation. In six months, 250-something of those nuns left the monastery, which is a crime in Christianity. It's not like in uh, here. Here you can be a monk for three months in Thailand. You can be a monk for six months. But in Christianity you take vows for life. And if you break them afterwards, it's considered that you are fallen very badly. Like you should not become a monk or a nun in Christianity if you intend to break it six years later. It's a very serious commitment which is taken for life. 250 out of 256, they recanted. They simply said, actually, I never wanted to be a nun. I don't think I belong here. They left. Two or three of them became radical lesbian feminists. And two or three stayed in the monastery. So the tree is known by the fruit. Is psychotherapy for nuns good? No. Because if those nuns stayed in the monastery and they were vegetarian and practicing humbleness and prayed every day and did karma yoga in the kitchen and went to the mass and to the services six times per day, even if they were not 100% made for it, they would have had a better karma and a better spirituality than just dropping out of the monastery and becoming Miss Nobody. Probably next year found drunk in a bar somewhere or found having had three abortions or something like this. No? 
The tree is known by the fruit. Psychotherapy for religious people is a disaster. Why? Because the spiritual life is based on some frustration. Ramakrishna's father died when he was six and then he started searching for God. So actually it was good for him that his father died. Spirituality for when you look at the life of a Ramakrishna or Milarepa or Francis of Assisi or Teresa of Avila is a little bit neurotic. The spiritual people are a bit neurotic because it's like they are, why can't you be happy with this? Why can't you just eat and drink and be merry, go and fuck, get a family, have three children, have a job, work for Shell Oil or for Toyota or something, do your thing and everybody is happy with that. My parents are happy with that, my uncles are happy with that, why can't you be happy with that? Man, you should seek help, no? You are a little bit, it's like you are frustrated, you are unhappy with a normal life, you are unhappy with the average life, and you are searching for some bombastic and maybe unrealistic. You want to go to the kingdom of heaven. Man, wake up, take a cold shower. There is no kingdom of heaven. There is this fucking life that we all have. And try to be happy with it and get as much as you can from it. That's what psychotherapy will tell you in a way. Because it's a materialistic science. But the religious person is a person who is a bit twisted and says, my mother, my father who treated me bad, my uncle fucked me, literally speaking, abused me sexually, this did this and that. There is no, I, I dislike all the human beings and I love God. My refuge is in God. This world is a valley of tears and uh, this world is deceitful and painful and I'm searching for my solace in God. And the psychotherapist says, Come, I will make you not feel so bitter about the world. No, 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 thank you. I actually want to feel bitter about the world because that motivates me to pray and to fast and to do my spiritual thing. So even the spiritual activity is sometimes based on a frustration because the spiritual person is dissatisfied with this and thinks that this sucks. And yes, philosophically we can say it's created by God Every atom is bearing the beauty of the Creator. I can tell you a lot of mantras, a lot of bombastic statements taken from monistic philosophies and other things like this. But in the end, the spiritual person says, I'm searching for my freedom. You are saying, what, aren't you free already and so on? No. Spirituality, to a large extent, when you look at great mystics and saints, Spirituality itself is like it's a neurosis, but it's a very good neurosis because the fruits of the tree, like Mother Teresa, instead of being some Albanian bitch, she took care of hundreds and thousands of hungry children and dying people. I'm happy that Mother Teresa was neurotic in that way because she chose to do something much better. The tree is known by the fruits, there is no other, you can speculate, but what, uh, wouldn't it have been better if, and you can do intellectual speculation as much as you want, what Jesus did is unbeatable, because Jesus says, whichever way you twist it, there is a bottom line, and the bottom line is, any tree shall be known by its fruits, and the good tree does not produce bad fruits, and the bad tree does not produce good fruits. So as simple as that. Therefore, you will see, that there are organizations which claim that they do good, but they cannot. 
Like Bill Gates is giving a lot of money to cancer research for children. It would be enough for me to show you one episode. There are until today, they are made about 30 episodes by an American organization, a guy called Ty Bollinger, who did a series of videos, three series, which are called The Truth About Cancer. In each episode is like 50 minutes. It's enough to see one episode to see so many cases and so many big scientists who all of them say chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, that's completely wrong and it's death over death over death and pain over pain over pain. And all the people who escaped from cancer, they usually did not have chemotherapy, radiation and surgery. Chemotherapy, radiation and surgery, it is said in those documentaries relying on sources, it has a healing rate after five years of 3%. 3% is your chance to not have cancer in five years if you did chemotherapy, surgery and radiations. So Bill Gates is giving his money to a research which is the research of the devil. They just research how to give people more pain and more disease. All the research done in that direction, it already goes in the wrong direction. But people cannot take a cold shower and say, let's see what we are doing, you know. Like we are trying to bring peace to Syria. What did result from the attempts of bringing peace or democracy to Syria? The result is hell on earth. You know who the most funny because people say Syria, Bashar al-Assad, top, you know, nerve gas, Muslims, Al-Qaeda. You know who died most in Syria in the last five, eight years since all this shit started? They are statistics. The Christians. There is a Christian minority in Syria and they were between the different Islamic factions and they are the ones who died by far, by far the most. So you want to bring democracy to Syria and then you have 2 million Christians dead in Syria. Bummer! The tree has bad fruits. The Arab Spring didn't really work because the Arab Spring never came from a good place. No, they tried to invade Venezuela. You know, okay, they live like shit in Venezuela, but it's their right to live like shit if they choose so. If they vote for Maduro... Let them live with Maduro. I come from a communist country and I cannot be in love with Venezuela or with Venezuelan socialism or whatever they did. No, I don't like it. But I cannot force them just because I want to get my hands on their oil. Just because Venezuela is one of the richest oil countries in the world, it doesn't mean I should step with my boots all over them. That's why I say... People can have very honeyed mouths and say, oh, but we want to help and we want to bring freedom and democracy. And the tree is known by the fruits. Two million Christians died in Syria. Who pays for that? And who killed them? You never hear. I watch news from time to time. Neither CNN nor Euronews nor BBC. They never say this thing which I told it to you today. It's taken from alternative news sites who have the courage to say, okay, this is not the way they say it in the mainstream media. No? So, that's why I say this thing of Jesus is unbeatable. It's like his Ajna Chakra was perfect. He sees through everything. 
He says, as much as you twist it around and around and around, the tree is known by its fruits. It's as simple as that. So follow the fruits of the tree to know what the tree is. If people come to Agama and they get healed, and they get more healthy, and they get vital, and they get happy, and they get this, and they get that, it means the tree must be good somewhere. People accuse us, oh, it's a profoundly wrong, and so on, like, why? Why are people coming and feeling wonderful, and some of them, after 20 years, they still have wonderful results, and their life is changed completely. No? The good tree produces good fruits, even if you try to cut it and suppress it, it still produces the good fruits. So this is, and he says, he mentions resonance. He says the good thing, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil brings evil. If you are full of darkness and envious and hate people and dislike people and so on, then only that will come out, even if you say, like there are people who say the planet has too many people. That's true. And the stupid religions say women should not have abortions, this should not have that. We're 7 billion plus people and it grows. And in some places like in China, in India, in Africa, in some places, the population is growing like brush fire. You know, it's growing insanely. And the intelligent people that have no heart, like the Bilderberg group and the think tanks and all these, They simply said, we think our planet could successfully lodge one billion people. Five billion, six billion, seven, ten, eleven, how many we're going to be? It's way too much. There is not enough agriculture, there is not enough this, water or whatever for eleven billion people. One billion would be a nice, ecological, elegant planet. So what did they plan to do? It's written, these are things written in books, in several sources, not just one crazy person writing it in a book. There are documents in the United Nations where they said that the most uh, lucky thing for humanity would be if there would come a virus who would kill 6 billion people tomorrow so that we can be 1 billion. Or if India and Pakistan will both get atomic bombs and they will get harassed until they nuke each other. And then suddenly we solve the big source of overpopulation because like these people think like engineers. It doesn't matter that six billion people have to die. Let them die because the other one billion people left, they will have a swell time. This is a dirty tree with very dirty fruit which advocates genocide, murder, But it's the intelligent solution. If you let the Indians keep on fucking like rabbits, now it's one point, when I was a kid, India was 500 million. Now it's 1.2 plus billion. More than double in a lifetime. Where is it going? So intelligent people say you have to do something. But it doesn't work the same for Jesus. Jesus says that the fruits of the tree have to be good. It's very important judgment. Think about it always when you are about to do something or evaluate something. No? Are the fruits good or bad? Take anything you want. Internet, Facebook, Hollywood, 
whatever, plastic surgery, whatever you want on this planet and evaluate it like this. Are the, how are the fruits of the tree? 51% on the bad side or 51% on the bad? Like nothing is 100% everything, but at least predominantly something. So the words of Jesus here, they show an incredible level of wisdom where he simplifies, like what's good and what's bad. You know, don't try to be a smart philosopher. It's written in a paragraph here. Any tree, any good tree has good fruits. Any bad tree has bad fruits. That's, that's the truth of everything. That's the simplicity. The great things are simple, eventually. You don't need to go into Immanuel Kant type of philosophy to try to find out what's good and what's bad. So simple. Jesus is much better than Kant and Hegel and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche put together, you know? Because he simply says very clearly where the source of the things is. And then he continues it's the same speech. Soon uh, it will finish, it says in the next paragraph, when Jesus has finished saying all this. Yeah, there is an amplifier which is brooming, which is buzzing. We'll have to make it a bit less. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You have to diminish the amplification simply because the amplification is too big at one of this. And the contact, of course. And probably no grounding. Probably it's possible that in that wire, the ground wire is broken. And <laughs> Anyway, so let's continue. He continues. He's still on the same for a while. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Like Jesus says, like you think that I want some praise. Oh, Guruji. Uh, I don't need to be called Guruji and so on. No, I've had that experience. I had some enthusiastic people who wanted me to do a Guru Puja last year or something like this. Never again. Never again. Because I've done it and the people who did Guru Puja with me, they came and fucked me in the ass six months later. And they still do. Some of them. So it's like, what Guruji, Guruji? There isn't, you know? And I don't need any one of you to treat me as a Guru or as a something, you know? I don't want any uh, exaggerated sign of respect from any of you. It's like Alan Watts says, you know? Consider your Guru like a spiritual friend, like an older brother who has been where you haven't been yet and can show you the way how to go there, you know? That's all. The spiritual friend, you know? Nobody needs any signs of... So Jesus himself, you know, he was very... People said, oh, how smart you are, and you raised three dead people from the grave. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? Lord, oh Lord, what should we do? I'm not any Lord, you know, you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. I'm telling you, forgive your enemies or whatever, and when it comes to some shit, you are again just like every Tom, Dick and Harry on the street. Then why do you call me Lord? No, I don't need any praise or any you buttering my hole in any way or something, you know. How is it called? Nose browning or brown nosing or whatever it's called. And I don't need that. I need you to listen to what I say. That's really what matters. That's why I'm here. I will show you what is he, what he is like who comes to me and hear my words and puts them into practice. So again, he gives a parable. He says, let's say that one of you listens to me. And he says, he is like a man building a house 
who dug down deep and laid the foundation on, on rock when a flood came, because there are flash floods in Israel, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. So Jesus says, if you listen to me, there will be tests, but you will resist those tests because your house is built on rock. Jesus cannot promise that you will not be tried or tempted. We can do it without the microphone. I can just record here and that's it or diminish it quite a bit because the hall is small and there's not so much noise. So, he says, if you really listen to me, you are building a strong foundation to your spirituality. No? It's like so important. It's, it was like, I think, Swami Vivekananda of India who said humility is not keeping you away from temptations, but is making sure that you don't fail when there are too many temptations. That's why it's necessary. But the one who hears my words, says Jesus, and does not put them into practice, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. I myself can see people whose house was struck in recent times and along my life I've seen many people whose house was struck and it was the destruction was complete. The destruction was complete. I've seen so many people losing their spirituality. Not with me. Don't think that I'm. this is gravitating around me. I have seen people who are pupils of some of my gurus. I've seen pupils who are pupils of other gurus that I never met and I just heard the story or something. Like I have seen and heard so many cases where the destruction was complete. Not only that people lost their path, but if you came five years later or ten years later in their lives, you found a disaster, a complete disaster. And you would say like, man, it sounds like these people are not even, you know, like they, it's like they never did anything spiritual. It's like, how can people forget to such an extent? And they do. They do, believe me. They do a lot. Therefore, Jesus, the parable of Jesus is very apt. He says, you have to build your house on a rock, which means some principles have to be applied. If you learn about Ahimsa, Apply Ahimsa. If you learn about whatever, Brahmacharya, apply Brahmacharya. Don't just make it because you say, oh, but uh, Vivekananda will not know, really. Does it matter if I know or not? If you are breaking rules or not, why are you doing it for me? Am I some sort of slave master who will start whipping your asses if you don't do some things or... It's for you. It's all for you. Spirituality is something which you do for yourself. And then when you become like Ramakrishna, maybe some people can take from what you know and you can nourish a few people with your wisdom. That's what I'm talking about. So, Jesus here is again 
so inspired. Parable after parable with a speck of dust, with a blind man leading another blind man, with a lot of things. His creativity is amazing. See, modern medicine, just as a parenthesis to this because it just came to me, modern medicine does not have a definition of health. <coughs> you know that there is no definition of health in the books of medicine. Like, you can ask doctors who finished the medical school, what did they learn in the school? They learned the definition of disease, not the definition of health. And alternative doctors, holistic doctors, they have tried to fix this. They went to the antique, like to Hippocrates and Galen and the likes of them, and they went to Charaka Samhita and Sushruta Samhita in India, and they consulted to see what's the goal. How do you make somebody healthy? Because health is the goal. You have to look forward to the health. And to make the long story short, health is defined for each body. Like physical health is one thing, an emotional thing is another thing, and mental health is another thing. And you know what's the definition of mental health according to George Vitulkas, allegedly, arguably, the leading expert in homeopathy today, very old Greek man who lives somewhere in an island in Greece and who is definitely one of the big, big holistic doctors of this planet today. He will probably be gone soon anyway because he's so old. The definition of mental health is that you have a ceaseless flow of creativity. The creativity is flowing out of you. In the moment when you have no more creativity, your mind is screwed. It means you are sick in your mind. Maybe not as sick as to go to a mental hospital, like not a mental patient, but it means your mind is not healthy. A healthy mind has a constant stream of creativity. Look at Jesus. He just hold, held a speech, and I commented on his speech for five weeks by now. And in those so many lines of speech and so many ideas, he is non-stop creative. He constantly has a parable. And he's a young man. Remember, Jesus does this when he's 31 years old. How much could I speak to the world when I was 31 years old? What did I know? Today, I have more experience. At least some half of what I say is, are things which I have seen or experienced. And the other half is things which I have read and learned from my gurus. But look at Jesus. He is just 30 or 31. And his creativity is something endless. He can speak about God and the spiritual life in endless ways. In endless ways. It's so beautiful to see this creativity and the fact that the parables and the comparisons and the examples and the issues... And everything is flowing freely out of him. You can be sure that Jesus was not talking from a piece of paper. I read his words from a piece of paper. But this man was speaking freely from a hill. And look what comes out of him. Like you cannot beat the fact that the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus gave the ultimate value evaluation for the whole history of planet earth. All the philosophers together could not be as clear as Jesus was in one paragraph that big. And that's just one of the many ideas which he pours over the crowd. And his creativity is something remarkable. And then finally we have a breath. 
Okay, so it says, when Jesus had finished saying all this, in the hearing of people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum is a village on the near the Galilee Sea, near the lake, which is called the Galilee Sea. So he spoke to people outside because they didn't have place inside the village. He gave them this speech is one of the most essential speeches that he gave in his life. And then he finally went to take rest, food, whatever it was, in, the, in Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Now Jesus again crosses a line. Because the traditional Judaism was very racistic, like the Jews were the chosen children of God, and everybody else, including Romans and Greeks and whoever, plus the Phoenicians and the Canaanites and whoever, they were all of them goim. They were all of them non-faithful, exactly as the Muslims. Today, they say the non-believers. It's the Muslims and the rest of the world, which are pagans and non-believers, the unfaithful or whatever they are being called nowadays in English. So, it was the same situation. And we all know that the message of Jesus became universal. Today, there are Jews who love Jesus and try to live according to his precepts. But there are also French and Brazilians and Japanese and others who love Jesus and live according to his word. So, the message of Jesus has gone way beyond Palestine. This is one of the first steps. That's where it starts. That's where, you, because you see, in a certain way, Jesus being who he is, he still works on cues. Like life is throwing some challenges in front of him. And Jesus is like a titanic boat. You know, he crosses over all the challenges and all the waves. He always has a solution. He's always successful. He's always victorious. Even the fact that he is crucified is ultimately a victory because it was part of his job description and he did even that successfully and greatly. So he does everything in a grand way. And now life is throwing to him a strange challenge. He is asked to give help to a Roman. Not only that the Romans were goim, but they were the worst kind of non-Jews, because they were the ones who were taxing the Jews for money. And as you all know, it's a joke, it's the subject of jokes in the world. The Jews have always been very sensitive to money. They love money a lot. You know, and when the Romans were coming and sucking their blood, the money, they were completely not happy. One of the disciples of Jesus was a tax collector who was Jewish, Matthew, and he was collecting tax which went to the Romans. He was the stooge of the Romans. He was the, 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 the tool of the Romans. So the Romans were the least liked people in that environment. And there it is. There was a centurion, which means a platoon leader. Centurion means uh, one who leads a hundred soldiers. So he was like a sergeant or a lieutenant or something. And this guy had a servant that was sick. He and the servant, of course, both Roman, not Jewish. About to die, not only sick. The centurion heard of Jesus 
and send some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So, he interceded, you know. He sent some elders, he knew, of course, he was well connected. He was a military leader, a policeman, or something in that. And he sent some elders, he says, bring me that healer. <clears throat> so you would say he was a bit arrogant, you know. But as you are going to see, he was not arrogant. This man had a heart. He probably had a big Manipura if he was a centurion. But besides that Manipura, he must have had a harmonious heart. This combination of a good Manipura and the great Anahata has produced in history some of the greatest Christian saints. Some of the greatest Christian saints are men and women with a big Anahata, but also with a big Manipura. Like they could stand their ground. They had a spine. They were vertical. They could fight for their things, but at the same time having a great heart. So he sends for Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. You know, people learn to love their guardian. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome, right? Somebody keeps you as a prisoner and you start thinking they are nice people. It doesn't mean the Romans were nice. Generally, the Romans were not nice. 70 years before, 100 years before Jesus, they had the rebellion of Spartacus. And they killed them all like sheep. They killed tens of thousands of slaves. They slaughtered them like lambs. So even 100 years ago, the Roman Empire was not nice at all. It was a, a killing machine. But then with Julius Caesar and the emperors and everything they did everywhere in the world, the Roman Empire was not at all elegant. Like they had a huge Manipura. It's one of the biggest Manipuras we have seen. The war machine which they created was unbeatable in their time. But at the same time, the, there was no Anahata to it. So the fact that these elders came to Jesus and said, Come on, man, do it for us because this guy built the synagogue. Like, okay, you build the synagogue and then the Jews love you because you build their synagogue, but you still tax their money and you still are the repressive police, the repressive army of Rome. So you can see obviously that these people had an interest. They tried to convince Jesus. Ultimately, it's interesting that uh, they were right because this guy was really a nice person who deserved. So you can say that Jesus had a good intuition. So they come to Jesus and say, come on, do us a favor. This guy is not like the other Romans. He is nice and, and he was indeed a special person. But they, not for this reason, for another reason which will come apparent. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. He called him Lord, you know. Don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to come you, to have you come under my roof. Because the Jews had a rule in those days, especially in religious days, that if you, you go into the house of a non-Jewish person, you are polluted for the day or for a while, and you have to do a lot of expiations and so on. So the traditional Jews avoided to go in the house of other people who are not Jewish for not having to do a lot of purification and a lot of expiation. This guy knew the Jewish mentality. 
And he is so uh, forthcoming that he even says to Jesus, Look, I actually you came, but you don't need to come all the way into my house because I know that could cause some religious trouble for you. He is very, very kind. He is very thoughtful, like he thinks about... No, he doesn't say, oh, let that uh, healer come and heal my slave and then he can go, I'll give him five coins and he will be happy. He's not trying to buy Jesus. He is treating him with respect, understanding where he is. No, in a way, what, as much as he can understand. So he says, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Whoa, this man starts being humble. Like he is a centurion. He rules over that village, Capernaum. He is so rich that he built them a synagogue as a gift. Here is for you guys a synagogue. He is the protector of the local community. He is the baron. He is the local baron. And he is calling for Jesus. And he says, I know you cannot come into my house. And I please don't, you don't need to do that. And he said, that's why I did not even consider myself to be worthy to come to you. Like this is the local baron who tells to Jesus, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. That, that's already humbleness. That man has a great Manipura, a great Anahata, and he can be humble. Of course, if there is a military action, he jumps on his horse and he is a centurion. Because if he doesn't have the Manipura of the centurion, he will be demoted. The soldiers will go to the bigger leader and will say, this centurion is just a sissy. He is just a wuss. And then they will verify and they will change him in three minutes. No, But he is a centurion. So what a mixture that he has the strong Manipura to be a centurion. And at the same time, he is humble and he says to Jesus, I am not even worthy for me to come and speak to you. Because you are some prophet from God. And I am just a person who doesn't even belong to your nation. Like he is really humble. But say the word, and my servants will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, Manipura. Orders are being obeyed. This is the example of a samurai type of Manipura, Zen type of Manipura, which almost mocks Anahata. Like samurai, Japanese samurai on Manipura, they could be very humble. Very humble. Not humbleness from Anahata. A certain humbleness from Manipura. Because you know your place exactly in the world and you know your worth. So this man from Manipura gives to Jesus an excellent demonstration of Anahata. Like he's humble and he says, you don't need to come to my house. I myself am not worthy to come and shake your hand because I'm not one of your people. But I know that if you are what they say you are, then you can just say a word because he says, I have soldiers. So what does he mean? What's the analogy? He realizes a simple thing, that a being like Jesus is served by spirits. 
that there are a million spirits like bees humming around Jesus. And when Jesus says this, this, that, that, those spirits go and do it. Of course, many of those spirits are nothing else but angels. It says earlier that after he fasted for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil, then he resisted the temptation and it says, and then the devil went away from him and the angels came and started serving him. Even some great yoga teachers are served by some spirit which help them to deal with their yoga students and with the classes and with all this. So it's the same. This centurion, he used the law of analogy. He said, if I, a simple centurion, have soldiers and just give orders and I don't need to look because I know it happens because if it doesn't happen, I'm going to kill them. No, so obviously it will happen. Then this guy who is such a powerful healer, he must have a million angels swarming around him. And he just tells one to them, go and heal the servant of this centurion. And it is, he doesn't need to come physically. That's just an illusion. See, in a certain way, his spirituality is less materialistic. He sees that things can be done with the mind directly. You don't need Jesus to go and lay his hands on the body of the servant. Jesus does that because the other people believe that he needs to do that and he wants to integrate in their faith. But this centurion says we can skip the formalities. I know that you can do better than just come in my house and lay your hands. So why don't you do it from a hundred meters away? Then I don't need to talk to you. You don't need to come in my house. because. And Jesus is amazed. It's like... How much does this guy believe in me? You know, like, my own people think that I'm a trickster of some sort. And this guy says, you know, if you just say a word or click your fingers, I believe it will happen. I trust in you completely. Jesus is in a certain way, in a certain way, flattered. You know, it's like, and he simply is like, what sort of faith? And that's when the idea comes in his mind. If there are people like this in Rome, I should have them as my disciples, you know, because my own Jewish people are na 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 nagging and skeptical and full of doubts. And look, this guy is coming from nowhere. He is not even a chosen one. And he has a faith and an understanding of what's happening three times bigger than my own disciples. He is very surprised. It's something which opens his mind to the world, that there is the rest of the world as well. And then, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Like the Israelis consider themselves very devoted to God. And he says, this Roman soldier is not a priest or anything. He's just a fucking centurion. And he has more faith than all of you put together. Look what faith he has. He just tells me, click your finger and it's done. I know. I know you can do it. So let's not play games. You don't need to play games with me. It's amazing. It's indeed an opening of the spirit which he has not seen. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So, like, how much could it have taken? Half an hour, half an hour, let's say the distances were really big. 
So in one hour the servants were healed already. If I remember I've read now uh, which said the servant got healthy in that moment. Pump on the spot. But of course it's a matter of time. And how did they find out that he was healthy or something. So this is the foundation of the healing with the mind. A Christian fundamentalistic Christian woman from America, Corey, called Mary Baker Eddy. She created the movement which exists until today. Not very developed today, unfortunately. It went in other countries, like in Latin America, it had more success, eventually, which is called the Christian science. And the Christian science is a healing, exactly like that of the centurion, that you don't have to do anything physically. You just pray and visualize something and then God can do it. Because you know, God, I don't need to put compresses, you know, plasters with chamomile. God doesn't need chamomile to heal any disease in this world, you know. So why play the chamomile game? Just eliminate the chamomile and just do it directly with the mind. Put a plaster with God on that place and that's all you take. Follow the Christian science because it has been inspired from this level. Here you already see not only the Anahata love, but this is purely Ajna Chakra. This is already the mind in its fullness. And in this period of time, Jesus does another one. And this other one is of course raising a dead man from his grave. Jesus apparently did this three or four times in his life. The accounts are a bit muddled about the fourth one. No? And um, it's almost never happening in history. It's like in martial arts, I think, in uh, Hard to Kill, the Steven Seagal movie, where some martial artist teacher says, everybody can learn to kill, but very few people can learn to give life or health. It's easy to kill. You just plunge a knife and the person is dead. But to make them well when they are damaged takes much more skill and much more effort. It's the same here. Life and death are not equal. Human beings, every human being, every one of you here can kill another person if you are given a weapon or the modality to do it. But can any one of you here with any weapon or tool give to somebody life, go to the graveyard and take a dead person and make them alive? Nobody can do that. Ah, when people have a cardiac arrest, there is a chance that they will resuscitate with uh, huge costs and so on, and sometimes it works. But the person was not completely dead yet. The person just had a heart arrest. But if you take somebody like we're talking here about a person had been dead for 6 hours, 12 hours, a day and 6 hours or something, you know. Nobody can bring them back. This is one of the very specific marks of Jesus. Because there are many legends and fairy tales where Osiris was killed and then Isis picked up the pieces of his body and she spit on them or put the water of life and glued him back and lo, Osiris was whole again and alive. This is not a historical story about a person. You are talking about a myth or a fairy tale. But in real life, 
that you go and say in the time of King Ashoka there was this man and he was dead for three days and then Shankaracharya came and spat on him and then he was alive again this actually did not happen this did not happen I challenge you to find cases where it happened like for example Moses went and did something that many Egyptian people died but the next day Moses could not do something so that those children that died should be alive the next day this thing to bring things from death to life it's only the prerogative of God only at the behest of God can somebody do it I hope you realize that the same thing is valid we celebrate Easter two or three times in the next week according to the Catholic Orthodox and Shambhala tradition and Easter is exactly that only that it happens to Jesus himself when Moses died he died when Muhammad died he died when Jesus died he did not die two days later he was back on his feet and talking to people. So the very fact that Jesus himself came from the dead and spent another 40 days with people on earth. It's pretty unique. Again, you can have legends about Osiris and others. There are many legends. The Greeks had such legends. But they are legends. They don't speak about a physical, concrete person who went through that. So legends are like the fruit of the mind. They are the fruit of imagination. But concretely, who did it? In India, in Persia, in Egypt, in wherever, who did it? Nobody. Only myths. And thus, with Jesus, we are exemplifying this. And just to show you how far this goes, because there is this, there is this tradition, there is this invisible thread left in the Christian mysticism because of this uh, only Jesus can give life like for example I'll tell you two stories one of them is that it is it has been said it is being said that the Empress Elena who was the mother of Emperor Constantine she got converted to Christianity and because she was the Empress of Byzantium and she had power over the Eastern Roman Empire, and Palestine was in her empire, she simply sent people and she said, now that I am Christian, I really want to touch with my own hand. And she sent them to find the cross of Jesus, if there still existed the cross on which Jesus got crucified. And they say that it exists. And there are various relics which claim that they still have a splinter, from that piece of wood. You know how they look like this is history of the Byzantine Empire. We're not talking about a legend. It can be an urban legend, like it can be like it was not quite like this, and they made it up, they fixed it up, maybe. I cannot demonstrate in the way you demonstrate in a scientific laboratory, but I can tell you what the historical or pseudo-historical story, concrete story, is about this. They found three crosses. Because apparently in that place there was an ensemble of three crosses which were being reused. And they didn't know which one of them was Jesus's. So what they did was very simple. A mother in Jerusalem had lost her child. She was dead. 
and they took the little baby in front of the three crosses and they prayed in front of each one of them and in front of one of them the baby came back to life and then they knew this is the cross of Jesus like from Jesus there starts a river of life of some sort there's not just magic hocus pocus that he walked on water that's a fucked up city very impressive but it's just a fucked up city but to bring life that you cannot do it let me tell you now the second story which is the story of a Christian saint from Rome I think bishop of Rome in the time of persecution like Christianity was it was before Constantine and if I remember correctly this guy was called Sylvester Saint Sylvester not like the cat so Sylvester was challenged because he did not worship the Roman gods and all that stuff and they wanted to punish him and then the Roman emperor consulted with the priests remember the Romans had a religion where they were sacrificing bulls to Zeus to Jupiter like a powerful magic religion where they did rituals and stuff and many paranormal things were happening so the Roman priests were not uh, nobody they could do things they could heal diseases they could do things and uh, the Roman emperor asked the priest can you beat this guy can you show him that he cannot do more than you yes they said of course we do this every day so then the Roman emperor he said look before I punish you I'll punish you if you are proven to be a stupid idiot and the test for you will be this our chief priest is coming with you in the arena and both of you are given the task to kill a bull with your prayers we're going to give you the most fierce bull one of these corrida corrida del toros bulls you know a killer bull and let's see if you can because our priest can do that let's see how big of a god is helping you Uh, this priest was called Zenobius or something Zenaidos something and they come the day is coming he accepts the challenge and this deed is exactly the spirit of Jesus they had two bulls equally fears equally you know like they didn't want to make any discrimination they wanted to be fair Zenobius is coming in the arena and they launch the bull and this Zenobius or whatever his name is he just says katachak or something and the bull falls down like hit by the lightning like shot by a bullet and he's dead and the crowd in the Colosseum or wherever this was happening goes berserk you know like who can beat Zenobius like the best which Sylvester can do is to kill his own bull and then they are even at least the Sylvester shows that he is powerful and of course you all know what Sylvester did before the second bull showed up he went to the first dead bull and simply whispered in his ear the name of Jesus he just said Jesus calls you back and the bull came up it was not dead anymore and the most amazing thing is that it was not fierce anymore it became very very kind and it was licking the hands of Sylvester was not a dangerous bull anymore 
That's what comes from Jesus. This thing from the heart which brings life and which brings an endless goodness and it's the end of everything because Jesus eventually when he gets crucified he shows that death is an accident because what we deserve is life, 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 eternal life, endless life. That there is something called life which is not the couple of death. Death and life are not equal. Death is an accident produced by ignorance and limitation. And life, the real life, the life of God, the life which comes from God, is something else. That life represents a divine gift. And only the creator of the universe can give life. Or only somebody who is empowered by the creator of the universe. Because Sylvester, he didn't do it through his power. He just said and said, Jesus is calling you back to life. And the bull came back to life because Jesus was watching it and they wanted it to happen. It was necessary for the Roman society so that this miracle should happen in front of 50,000 people on that stadium. Imagine, how could you stop Christianity when 50,000 people have seen that one? No? Then, then it was like, you know, if he killed his bull, he would have been equal to Zenobius. But because he resurrected the other bull, he was way above Zenobius. Zenobius couldn't even dream about doing that. He knew how to kill with a mantra. But he didn't know how to bring back. Because there is no mantra which brings back. Except Jesus. You know, that's a good mantra to bring back. You know, but that's something else by itself. So, uh, here, Jesus does it again. And this is a mark of Jesus. Remember, even Ramakrishna, he healed lepers. He healed blind people. Ramakrishna did a lot of the miracles which Jesus did. But he never raised a dead person. Never. And neither did other avatars. Rama, the great Rama, he had friends which died in his war. He couldn't bring them back. Krishna, during the war of the Kurukshetra, he saw a lot of his friends and valuable people dying. He couldn't bring them back. And Krishna was an avatara. That's why we say that Krishna was an avatara, but Jesus was an avatara which was like incomparable to what we have seen. Maybe there is something which we haven't seen and which is there, but as far as we have seen in history, try to compare to Jesus. Even servants of Jesus brought people back to life. One of the disciples of Francis of Assisi, Saint Anthony, Saint Anthony, he was just a monk and they brought him a girl that had drowned and he prayed to Jesus and she came back to life in the 12th century, you know, like much, much afterwards, you know, but he did it in the name of Jesus. It was for Jesus. It was a consecration to Jesus. It was karma yoga for Jesus that he was doing. And that's why the merit does not belong to Anthony. The merit belongs to Jesus still. Jesus is the one who has this special signature that besides the fact that he heals lepers and others, 
he has this thing that he has beaten death, that even death means nothing from the standpoint of Jesus. And he says this will be our final episode for tonight. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, more like a village, of course, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and the large crowd from the town was with her. Uh, that's especially, tries to say that it's especially sad circumstance, because if she was a widow, and this was her only son, that once he died, she had nobody to put bread and butter on her table. She was bankrupt. So it was like a doubly tragic situation, that this was her only son, and she was a widow, and therefore there was, now her son died, she was in a super miserable condition. And... When the Lord saw her, but of course Jesus, you can say he is good with PR. There was a big crowd with him and there was a big crowd from the village of Nain. So like he had a lot of audience. This was not done discreetly behind the tree. It was in front of a thousand people, you know, or more. No, and it's like, you know, will this have effect? Sure. Many, many spiritual teachers cannot understand this thing with life, resurrection, and things like this. And they think that that's where Jesus is like completely unusual, completely in a class by himself. Then when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. So he, as a human being, had compassion. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin. Not the person, the coffin. And those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Simple story which says everything. Like when you can raise the dead, then you can even order an inquisition or a crusade. Because if you can bring people back, then you have the right to kill them as well. Because it means you are God and you have full right over death and life. If you can only kill them, then you shouldn't dare to do that. Because if you cannot bring them back, it means you do not master the energy of life and death. But Jesus could. So he is above every limitation of any kind. Several times in his life he did this crazy thing. No. You cannot, people can be cynical and say maybe the young man was just clinically dead. How did Jesus know that he was just clinically dead when he was in a coffin and Jesus was 10 meters away? No. Even the situation is not uh, like, oh, Jesus noticed that he was in a coma and he just pricked him with a needle in his ass and he came back. And Jesus pretended he brought him back to life, but he was not dead to start with. How would it fit with these circumstances? It wouldn't fit. It doesn't work. And thus, not only that the man came back, but he was not brain dead or something. He started talking and, you know, like he was okay. He was okay, which is technically impossible, but not for Jesus, not for God.
they were all filled with awe and praised God. See, it tells us something here. They did not praise Jesus. They praised God because Jesus surely must have told them, don't think I'm a magician. Life is coming from God. I just prayed God and God gave him the life and God gave him to his mother. So praise God, don't praise me. Karma Yoga. Karma Yoga full on. So they praised God, which is perfect. That's how it should be. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Of course, but nobody had done anything like that. Like John the Baptist or Moses or any of the great prophets which existed before. None of them came close to this one. When somebody was dead, they were dead. And that's the end of it. But not for Jesus. That's why, again I'm saying, Jesus as an avatar, he brings us an energy, a, a degree of presence of God, which is unique. Unique. We hear anecdotally in India, but not proven as this, that some people praying to Shiva, they manage to bring back a child from dead or from like in the stories about Shiva in India, the similar thing is said that Shiva can turn death into life and life into death. It's not a problem. It makes no difference for Shiva and therefore he can do that. But not as clear as these stories. There are a few urban legends in India where they say that I don't know which guru, Tiru Mular or some Tamil saint prayed to Shiva and he got some effect, like this, radical effect. Otherwise, this kind of seal is very specific to Jesus. In all the five major religions of this planet, and in all the five to ten minor religions which exist on this planet, there is not one example of this. For example, Buddha was asked to bring back a child, and Buddha did not. He didn't say, I cannot, but he said, I should not. Like, well, I don't know, maybe Buddha did not have a warrant from the Supreme Consciousness. Yes, you can also show to people this one, so that they will believe in you more. Maybe it was not on his to-do list. For Jesus, it was on his to-do list. He was allowed to do this, and he did it. And the last time when he did it, he overdid it. Because that's the legendary story with Lazarus. Where not only that Lazarus was dead, but Lazarus had been dead for four days. So he was putrid already. Not only dead. This man probably was buried the next day or the same day or something. No? And he was fresh. <laughs> but Lazarus was already stinking. And still Jesus made like this and Lazarus came back. And he was talking and eating and doing all that stuff. So, this is where we get to the incomprehensible. Because Jesus, like not very many events on the face of this earth, 
He is the one who proves I am the God of death and life. I can cross the borderline of death and life. And he himself, eventually, he was murdered and then brought back. Crossed the death and life zone both ways and demonstrated the victory of the spirit over everything. So, uh, after Jesus gave so much creativity and he gave so many teachings illustrating the consciousness of Anahata Chakra and he expanded a little bit towards the Romans and implicitly to the rest of the world, he also did in this little village, which I don't know if it exists nowadays, this Nain, you know, in, in modern day Israel, there he did the ultimate. He brought a young man from his funeral back to life in front of a crowd in a matter of seconds. So this is what demonstrates to us that when we stand in front of Jesus, we stand in front of something, someone very, very special, very, very different from what we usually see. Remember, Ramakrishna did pretty much all the miracles of Jesus, but he never brought anybody back from the dead. So, there is a limit. It's like the cherry on top of the cake, which is reserved to the creme de la creme, to the elite in terms of spirituality. We could say many more things, but I think it's enough because I galloped through a lot of facts. I did not find the way of commenting more of the yogic teachings and resonance. It will come... Sometimes the story about Jesus is just a simple narrative where he went there and did that, and then he went there and said that. And it's like self-explanatory, like there's not much to comment, because he, you know, it's very clear, and we don't have, we don't need to split the hair. When he talked about the blessings and this, there, that's a complicated issue, because there, you know, he turns the perspectives on the world upside down, and he said what people think it's sad, it's actually very joyful, and what people think is joyful is a big failure, and they are going to see it sooner or later. So there, there is a lot of philosophy, but in this one with raising a dead boy from his coffin, you know, it's, I can only call your attention to the fact that definitely it did not happen too often in the history of mankind. That's the least we can say about it. Enough of that. Let's say it was enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining in this satsang. And we'll continue with... We are now in chapter 7. We'll continue next week with more of these teachings. Enough for tonight.